You're listening to HIV Frontlines, U.S. Edition, the body's podcast series focusing on frontline workers in the HIV epidemic in the United States. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, please visit us on the web. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director of TheBody.com. I'm here today with Mark King. Mark has recently had his first book published. The book is a memoir detailing 10 years he spent in Los Angeles in the 1980s after he finished college. Mark, as one of the few HIV-positive people to survive the 1980s, did you feel you had to write this book? Yes. As a matter of fact, that's a great way of putting it. I, I did feel as if I had to write it. I felt as if there were so many stories there, I felt it was the least I could do. It was the least I could do for the memory of my friends that I lost, as well as, you know, sharing our history, telling the story to people who were going to come afterwards. Hmm. So could you summarize a little bit what happened after you went to college and you went to Hollywood? Sure. I, I went out to Los Angeles right after college to pursue, you know, the Hollywood dream. I was, you know, 20 years old and I had bright red hair and I looked like Opie Taylor. And I had done some acting, and I figured I'll go out there and do a bunch of TV commercials and things, which is actually what I did. I, I, I started working as an actor. But that didn't pay so well, and the checks were sparse, and I found myself working for a telephone fantasy company, which were, uh, the, in the olden days, before they had computers, they had services you would call and use a credit card and order someone to talk to. It was a telephone sex company. That actually became so wildly popular that I opened my own company and at the same time got involved in cocaine use. So in short order, this young kid turned from being this kind of wholesome uh, actor in McDonald's commercials to being a sexual entrepreneur and drug addict. That behavior and that business was eclipsed when AIDS came along and started its big march through our community in the early 80s. We were given completely different marching orders, as it were. Suddenly, we were told, as men, you can continue doing what you're doing in terms of both sexual behavior and in terms of what you value and where your priorities are, or you can help take care of the sick and the dying and do something about what's happened. And so I found myself changing once again from kind of a very selfish, self-absorbed sort of guy in my mid-20s pursuing uh, sex, drugs, and money uh, to someone who was working for a very small salary at an aid service organization. And that's where I found my meaning, and that career continued as I left Los Angeles and went on to Atlanta 10 years later. Mm -hmm. I I know a lot of people didn't get tested back in the 1980s since at that point HIV was considered a death sentence and and so there was sort of no point to get tested. What made you get tested and how did you deal with the results? I just had this morbid curiosity and you're right there was such a political it was politically incorrect to get tested. Absolutely not would you want to do that and we didn't need any evidence of that. We saw it all around us. I had friends who couldn't go get a manicure because they were gay and the people in the manicure shops wouldn't give them a manicure. They were afraid of getting HIV. Uh, friends thrown out of their houses, you know, d- deserted by their families, all of that thing. The news was all bad if you were HIV positive. There was no good news. There was no um, drugs of any sort. That being said, I had this morbid curiosity, and I couldn't help myself. And as soon as the test was available, I had a friend that worked in a doctor's office. He was a nurse. And he let me in there after hours, and I went in there and he drew the blood for me and my partner and did it after hours so that there was no medical record of it. And then, of course, called a couple of weeks later with the results. 
I guess one of the reasons I took it is I thought that I probably was. I knew what my own sexual behavior had been, which was, you know, probably not uncommon for a 21, 22, 23-year-old in West Hollywood in, in the early 80s. Nevertheless, I knew that I had been promiscuous. I knew that my chances of escaping this were pretty slim. And I guess I just wanted to know what the truth was. And so that's why I took the test. I didn't handle it, I would think, very well because it made me feel even more fatalistic, I guess. I was already very in, very into my drug addiction with cocaine, and I thought, what the hell? It gave me license to continue a self-destructive path rather than a wake-up call. It was just a license to self-destruct. Uh-huh. And you, you recount um, in your book a little bit about those times. And once you tested positive, did you feel that you were going to escape this? Or when you saw other people get sick around you, how did you feel? It's funny. Um, how did I feel? How I felt, especially during the times of my drug addiction with cocaine, is a very good question because the cocaine was designed to help me not feel. I was medicating myself through a terribly bloody war. Um, my friends were all dying. I had friends who went to work on Friday and felt bad and were dead by Monday. They just came down with pneumocystis pneumonia or something over the weekend, and they were dead in three days. So it was a war zone, and I was doing everything I could to medicate myself against it. Um, I'm not saying that that was the right thing to do. It's just how I chose to deal with it at the time. That's how I responded to that. In, in a way, I kind of felt like a child who plays invisible when things are bad are going around them. They just they hope that if they're invisible, the monster won't get them. That's the way I felt during those early years. You know, I'm just going to pretend this isn't happening, and maybe it won't get me. You compartmentalize those things. On the one hand, I was taking care of friends. I had friends dying in my house and the guest room, and yet I can compartmentalize that and tell myself, this isn't going to happen. This, this isn't going to happen to me. Did you ever find out why it never happened to you? I mean, do you have something special um, that allowed you to survive this long? No. It's pure. It, it, it's completely pure luck. I, I would like to think that uh, it was my attitude or my lifestyle, but certainly my attitude and lifestyle suffered. I was a drug addict, and I um, didn't uh, necessarily um, uh, take good care of myself. And my attitude went back and forth. I mean, between the denial of not believing it would happen to me, there were certainly times of deep, deep fatalism where I knew it would happen to me, where every death was a preview of coming attractions for myself. I saw so many people that I admire who were wonderful people, who were helpful to people around them, who, who worked at AIDS agencies in the early years when there was no hope, who had AIDS themselves. And you would look at these people like Daniel Warner from the Los Angeles Shanti Foundation and people like that who had a special light about them, and you would think they're going to make it because they've got the right attitude and God has blessed that person. They died anyway. I saw people with perfectly good attitudes die anyway. So the random nature of it made it all the more hellacious because there was no rhyme or reason. Uh-huh. You you describe in your book a, a night in L.A. with around 500 men, mostly with HIV, who had gathered to listen to a woman named Louise Hay. Yes. Can you, can you tell us about that night and about what kind of attraction this woman had? Sure. That, 
that was an amazing experience. Um, Louise Hay kind of happened upon the scene being at the right place at the right time. She was a woman, um, a kind of a self-help guru, who um, had kind of made her reputation as someone who claimed that she had cured herself of cancer. Uh, and she did it through this process of self-love and, and positive affirmations for herself. Now, whether or not you you believe that um, or not, she certainly had a very strong persona, and she started uh, hosting what they referred to as the Louise Hayrides at West Hollywood Park there in West Hollywood. And I had heard about them but never gone. My older brother, who was also gay, his partner had AIDS at the time, and they had started attending, and they said for me to come along. Now, mind you, up until that point, which was around 1986 or so, 1987, my personal nightmare of AIDS was very, very personalized to those around me. You know, I, I, didn't, I wasn't getting out and doing anything really public, you know, or going to town hall meetings. I was simply dealing with one-on-one -on -one friends who were had it. And here I walk into this hall, and it's stuffed. It's overflowing. There are people sitting on the floor, and they are, almost without exception, all gay men. And they have come to hear Louise Hay talk about her message of loving yourself and forgiving yourself and getting well. And it was an amazing sight, because I had never seen so many people with AIDS together. And I could, I, I, it was that moment that I realized, this isn't just happening to me. You know, and my circle of friends, oh my God, this is big. This is really big. There were people in wheelchairs. There, there were people out the door, sitting outside, trying to listen through the door to what she was saying. And, and the message that she had was so appropriate for that time, because she was saying, A, you can survive, which people with a terminal disease, you know, like to hear, and B, love yourself. We as gay men had only gotten, just gotten to a place socially, you know, sociologically in our society where we were even accepted just prior to AIDS. We were kind of coming into our own and feeling more secure in our society. And then AIDS came along and branded us as keepers of disease. That message of hers, love yourself, you're okay, was a wonderful, beautiful message for all these men, many in that hall. You know, we're staying in the guest room of our friends because their families had thrown them out or who, you know, like I say, couldn't go get services somewhere, weren't welcome in other friends' homes anymore. And, and for this woman to come forward and say, you are loved, love yourself, you can survive this, it was the right message at the right time. Well, can you, like, I guess, make this room come alive a little bit more? What was the average age, would you say? It was hard to know how old everyone there was because they were so covered in disease. There was so much carposis sarcoma and people's hair falling out and, 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 and so many of them looked ancient who may not have been out of their 20s. I would, I would predict that they were mostly in their 20s and 30s. It was as if you had taken everybody from the dance floor of the biggest, most crowded gay club in West Hollywood and then walked them through wardrobe and makeup of a, of a horror movie of the latest zombie flick and then stuffed them in this hall. Uh -huh. And so when you said they, they had um, Kaposi Sokoma, that meant they had like purple? Oh, yes. Yes, they were covered in lesions. They we were unrecognizable. Their eyes were swollen shut. Their 
hair was falling out. I want to say it was so pathetic because they were pitiful. There's no doubt about it. I was healthy at the time, but watching the sight, it was so pitiful. And yet, the fact that they were all coming to sit in the glow of this woman and collectively believe that they could be okay. She had songs that she enjoyed, that she had written, that she would sing, Spirit Am I, and I Love Myself. To have 500 gay men who don't know if they're going to live out the month sitting together with their arms around each other, singing I Love Myself, when they were branded as disease-carrying pariahs by virtually everybody outside that room, it was an amazing, profound sight. So did you go to more than one meeting, or was that it? Yeah, I, I went more than once. There was a metaphysical nature to the meetings. There was a, a stage in the hall, and on that stage they had placed all of these uh, like massage tables and people with quartz crystals who believed in the healing power of quartz crystals were sitting on the stage ready for people to come. And people were trying anything. I mean, you know, this was at a time when there was no treatment. AZT maybe had appeared on the scene by then. And, and so people were talking about getting their blood sucked out of their body in exchange with, with whole new blood and getting their blood heated and getting, you know, spirituality about going to a certain place or, or, or having crystals placed on their body and energy and, and every alternative thing you could think of they were experimenting with because there was no, there was no mainstream medication. So this was a time when there was no viral load test, and None. and the the thing that everyone knew were the the sixteen opportunist inf- infections that you could get. Yes. And uh, yes, there was no there was no tracking for it. In other words, you go, you know, you're HIV positive now. They can not only tell you what your viral load is and what your T cells are. They can tell you what strain you've got and what drugs it might be resistant to, and all of these things. At the time. You didn't see it coming. There was no test to see it coming. There was only a test for your T-cells, and they could see how bad off you were. They didn't know how many viral replications were in your body. You know, they didn't know how close you were to acquiring an opportunistic infection. It was a total crapshoot. So every symptom could mean that you had some new problem. Oh, my God. Every morning in the shower... It was a ritual for every gay man at that time to check every place on their body they could possibly see in the shower and look for a spot and do so with great trepidation and fear. Uh, we, were, we were checking ourselves all the time. We were checking each other. If you even ventured out to the bars anymore, of course, that, you know, that was not the activity it once was, but if you were in the bars during that time, you were looking at that other guy, too. If you were considering hooking up with somebody, you wanted to see as much of his body as possible before he went home, and not to see if he had muscles. You wanted to see if he had marks. Of KS. Marks of AIDS. Mm. Were you also looking to see if people were losing weight? Yes. People would disappear from the bars, and you would just assume they died. You know, and, and, and chances are you were right. You, you know, you would go to your your neighborhood bar if you felt in the mood anymore. If you went to your neighborhood bar, people were missing. Bartenders were missing. They were dead. You know, you didn't even ask. And then if you did see somebody after a long period of time, you hugged them like you hadn't seen them since you were kids because you thought they were dead. You hugged each other for dear life because you figured the, if you hadn't seen a friend for a few months, for whatever reason, and you ran across him somewhere, it was like them coming back from the dead.
at some point there were so many people sick and dying everywhere that it became just part of the emotional landscape. How, what, what did that feel like? I guess you got used to it, but when, when, you to, when you told your parents or you talked to them, I mean, they lived in a different world. Yeah. When I took the test for HIV, I, I, and I took it early on as soon as it was available, I called home and told them the results. I was living in just, as, just enough denial myself that I almost probably convinced them that maybe I was okay. You know, I said, look, this, you know, I am positive, but I don't want you to worry because it doesn't mean I'll ever get, H, you know, I'll ever get AIDS. It just means, you know, that I have the virus, but don't worry, don't worry. At least on the phone, they sounded like they were satisfied with that explanation, but I know they couldn't have been because they watched TV. They, they knew what an HIV test result really meant. And I think that they allowed me just to live in my denial without pushing it, because really, what was the point? And it was that whole pointlessness. It was that whole feeling of um, existentialism, you know, that we were just all living in a nightmare that made no sense. And it seemed so unfair. And it intersected so perfectly with those people who were ready to hate us anyway people who had prejudices against gay men or religious uh, differences with gay men. This fed that so completely, they could look to it and say, see, you got what you deserved, or see, God is punishing you. And if you were a gay man that had a sincere question about your sexuality, that was torturous, because you couldn't argue with it. I couldn't argue with the fact that all my friends were dying, and I had to hear on TV every day, or from the occasional rude stranger, that I deserved it, that this is what you get. And so it was a, it was a hellacious existence. Um, in your book, you, you repeat a joke that, that was circulating at the time. You said the hardest part of having AIDS was convincing your parents that you were Haitian. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because there's people that probably don't get that joke at all anymore, uh, and you know it's so funny. But early on, in terms of you know HIV, the, the best that they could the best that they could determine early on in the United States was that AIDS was affecting gay men and Haitians, and that's all they really knew. I mean, remember we are rewinding uh, an epidemic, you know, 25 years back to its at that time. That's all the epi- epidemiological data they had, Haitians and gay men. Well, unfortunately, there were a lot of gay men that had to come out to their parents and give them two bombshells at once. A, mom and dad, I'm gay. B, I've got AIDS. You know, it forced men to come out to their parents who had not planned on doing so. And at the most horrible time, at during a time in which to be gay was equated to having AIDS anyway. But to know that you had AIDS and were gay was almost certain uh, was going to cause you a, a lot of problems. And and so the joke was, yeah, the hardest part of having AIDS is convincing your parents you're Haitian. Um, you, did, you wanted to avoid giving them both bombshells at once. Yeah, and I, I guess just to remind our listeners, during that time, uh, Ryan White, who was a, a, a little boy with AIDS, um, had to move from place to place because his house was being set on fire. Yeah. So it was a pretty, pretty bad time just having anything to do with the disease. Um, and so a lot of parents did not act 
well when their son told them no, this. No, and, and, and these are parents that probably weren't going to have a good uh, response to finding out that their son was gay, much less had a deadly disease that had already had an enormous stigma on it. So I certainly played host to friends who um, had lost their apartment because their roommate couldn't handle the fact that they had AIDS. Their roommate didn't want to catch it from them. And remember, these were other gay men. Among us, among us gay men, we were afraid of one another. We were afraid of what we might get from our friends. If you found out you were positive, there were friends, even gay ones, that stopped calling, that stopped touching you. And there were certainly AIDS patients who were kicked out from an apartment situation by their roommate because the roommate didn't want to have to share the same bathroom with them or or what have you. It's important to remember there were very thoughtful, intelligent people on television during that time discussing whether or not we should be quarantined. I mean, William F. Buckley, Jr., for instance. Yes. I think his suggestion was to tattoo people with HIV. Uh, Yeah, and then there was our great senator from North Carolina. You know who I mean. Anyway, there there were certainly suggestions and debate about whether or not gay men should be quarantined or if people with AIDS in general, because that basically meant gay men, people with AIDS in general should just be put somewhere. You know, just put them on an island or in a big institution of some kind. Right. You know what's horrific about it? This is, the, this is why it's a nightmare. It becomes a nightmare when it starts making sense to you two. When, it's, when it started making sense to me, when I was like, hmm, I can understand why they would think that way. With no hope and no treatment and it's spreading like wildfire and people are dying by the truckload then quarantining us does make a certain amount of sense. And that's when you realize you're in a nightmare. So I want to go back to the the predicament that a lot of people, a lot of men found themselves. And this is, I don't know if you knew men like this. I know I did. Um, They were 22. They just finished college. They found out they had HIV. They found out it was pretty advanced. um, And they had to go home because they didn't have really health insurance and they didn't really couldn't support themselves as they got sicker. So they had to sort of go home to mommy and daddy and they were rejected because their father or something said, I'm not going to have a gay boy in my house. And, right. you know, and then they basically were put up in somebody's guest room and um, died and were buried in a pauper's cemetery. I mean, I don't know if... That, that scenario you've just outlined um, was not only very common, but it definitely certainly happened to me and, and, and probably anybody else who was around at the time. Whoever had a guest room, that guest room during that period, if you were you know enlightened enough, was usually filled by um, some friend who had no place else to go. And in many cases, the rejection of his parents was included in that. I had a good friend named David who had what he thought was a fairly close uh, relationship with his parents who were extremely religious. And they saw him once when he was sick. And it was when he visited home to talk to them about it. And his visit was cut short because he was asked to leave the house. And the last time he spoke to them, their last words to him were, you're going to hell. And they were quite stricken by it. They were sorry about it. But they were convinced he was going to hell, and they told him that. And that was the last conversation he had with his parents. Yeah, we were were all kind of doing the makeshift hospice 
seen, you know, in our own homes when there was no place else for our friends to go. So how did it feel as a young man to be dealing with death? I mean, you, I imagine this was the first time you were dealing with it. Absolutely. It was, uh, well, I'll put it this way. It was, it was definitely the last thing I ever thought I would be thinking about at 22 years old, you know, running my 22-year-old ass all around West Hollywood, pretty as a picture, thinking I had my whole life ahead of me, and involved in a lot of the, you know, um, trivial pursuits, as it were, of, of gay men my age, um, to suddenly be uh, faced with this uh, was a real real punch in the gut, a, a punch in the gut that, that felt like it was the punches just kept coming every day for so many years. Only in retrospect can I say what a profound experience it was, what a great learning experience was, how I I understand compassion and courage in a way that I never would have. And that's all true. At the time, it didn't feel that way. I wasn't walking around every day congratulating myself for being such a courageous guy. I was just trying to make it through the day, and I was afraid, and I would pray to survive. I just wanted to survive, and it's almost like the price I paid for my survival was I had to watch everybody else die. I had to watch all those, other, all those friends of mine. This is not to say people aren't still dying. All of those friends of mine that I lost during that period, in order for me to survive, my prayer was answered but it meant I had to see them all die. And, um, and that was a pretty high price to pay. So what kind of effect do you think it's had on you and your life since then, watching all these people die and, and sort of being a survivor? I'm proud of myself for how I was then. I'm proud of myself that I stepped up when I needed to step up. There's no doubt about it. I got involved in AIDS work. I cleaned myself up. I, I got some meaning to life. Those are all true things. I feel as if I didn't have any choice but to do those things. And, and so I did it. But I am proud. I am proud of myself then. On the other hand, it has meant that since then I've continued to search for some sort of meaning in life because after you've gone through that sort of experience, that, that extended experience for nearly a decade, you spend the rest of your life asking yourself, well, how do I top that? How do I top that in terms of, of being the kind of man that I was then, where I'm capable of showing enormous compassion and, and, uh, and, and, and there was meaning in the, li- in, in the life I was living then. There was incredible meaning um, through the tragedy. I've only been able to see a lot of that in retrospect, but I think that some of the scars I bear are the fact that I think a lot of my present-day drug addiction, because I've had issues with crystal meth in the last few years, and I think a lot of that is a little bit of a post-traumatic, I don't want to make excuses for my drug use, but a little bit of post-traumatic sort of, well, what do you do for an, another act after that? I almost am afraid that the best man that I'll ever be happened 20 years ago. He was there in the 80s, but I don't know what to do with him now. And, and, and that is kind of a haunting feeling. So I guess that's going to be part of your next book. <laughs> I suppose so. I suppose so. There's still a lot of thoughts that I have on it. Yeah. Um, what do you hope someone in their 20s can take away from this book? I'm really amazed 
at the number of emails I am getting from young gay men especially in their 20s, early 30s, who had no idea. They didn't know what we lived through day to day. They didn't know. They, they heard, oh, it started off really bad, but then it got better. That's pretty much what they've heard. Or maybe they saw in the band played on, you know, on HBO or, or something. But that's been about it. You know, I'll engage these guys and say, well, don't you have any older gay friends that have sat you down and said, let me tell you what it was like? No. No, they haven't. These are intelligent, out-of-the-closet, younger gay men who just don't know. My message is really for men, survivors like myself, and that is share your story. Let them know. We, we vowed we would never let people forget not only how we stepped up as a community, because we should be so proud of that, and the pride we feel for what we did for other gay men. That pride should go on for generations. People should remember that we really stepped up then. But also, we shouldn't forget the governmental indifference and the fact that we had to create patient advocacy almost from scratch. I mean, certainly it was there before, but things like accelerated fast-track access, FDA access, FDA fast-track access would not exist today if it were not for AIDS activists. The whole way in which the FDA approves drugs and gets them out to the patient population. It's mostly for the HIV population. They don't do that as commonly for other drugs. No, they don't, but they weren't doing it at all until we came along because we demanded it. And I think that the whole personality of patient advocacy groups everywhere of for any disease category have benefited from what happened then. And from people standing up and saying, wait a second, you're going to deal with this, you know, um, and you're going to try to deal with it more quickly. Um, I think that we have a lot to be proud of, and, and I would want men my age who remember that. If they are friends or mentors or what have you to men who are younger, let them know. Let them know what we have to be proud of and what we went through. Um, uh, for younger gay men... I hesitate to have anything to say to them because I don't want to sound like a cranky old man watering the lawn saying, hey, youngster, you know, remember what we did for you. In my day, we didn't have AIDS drugs. You know, that's all true. I, I, think, I think that they have the right to live their lives, and they're going to have their own challenges. Uh, they're going to have their own challenges, and they're going to have their own opportunities to step up and show compassion and, and, and empathy for those around them. I had my chance, and I, and I performed well, I believe, and hopefully they'll get the same chance, just not in, in a situation as dire. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time to talk about your book. Um, I hear it's, it's available on Amazon? Yes, you can get it at Amazon.com, or uh, you can read an excerpt, obviously, on the body, or actually uh, see uh, other excerpts or critic reviews at my website, www.markesking.com website. Great. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your interest. Thank you so much to the body for your interest in this. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. 
This has been HIV Frontlines U.S. Edition from The Body. Be sure to check in frequently at thebody.com for the latest news and information on HIV.